Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. In last week's Vision on Sound, Warren Cummings joined me to talk about Nigel Neal's classic 1950s creation, Quatermass 2, starring John Robinson in a beautifully crafted and ambitiously epic tale of paranoia, conspiracy, human self-deception and an alien invasion by stealth and guile played out in front of the backdrop of a post-war Britain still held in the grip of rationing, conformity and Cold War fears. By the time our episode ended, we'd only got up to the point in the story just before the end of episode 4 when Roger Delgado, playing journalist Hugh Conrad, is desperately trying to tell the world about the alien invasion taking place at the industrial plant at Winnerton Flats, which had previously only been thought to be creating synthetic food through some mysterious new process. And if you missed part 1, luckily for you, last week's episode can be heard, like every previous edition of Vision on Sound, via anchor.fm slash visiononsound. But before you do that, please do allow Warren and I to pick up where we left off with a disgruntled group of the manual labourers responsible for construction work on the plant overhearing Hugh Conrad as he phoned in his report and deciding to take some affirmative action for themselves. So let's fire up our Fab Radio International time engines and go back and pick up where we left off last week. As evidence grows that artificial means are being used to spread the living things from the meteorites and their contact infection, Quatermass decides on desperate alternatives. With a prominent journalist, Hugh Conrad, as witness, Quatermass goes to the prefab town near the secret plant of Winnerden Flats. He appeals to construction workers. The proof of his words comes quickly. A fresh fall of meteorites, now being sought and collected by special personnel from the plant. The things are coming down in hundreds. The full invasion is on. Conrad, infected by one of them, struggles to send a report. Meanwhile, in special squad uniform, Quatermass manages to enter the plant where the recovered meteorites are being transferred to the first of the giant steel domes. In the recreated conditions of another world, now expanding, grouping, changing in mass and shape and size, are the Ammonid things. Hello, Warren. Hello, Martin. It's nice to be back. Yes. When I was speaking to you last week, we ran out of time. Yes. (laughs) And we abandoned our conversation at the point where Roger Delgado had had just been possessed by the evil alien goo. And he's looking at his hand and talking in on the telephone really intensely. So I think we'll pick up our conversation where we left off. Absolutely. Quatermass has managed to sneak into the plant, and the rabble, the, the rabble, you know, the, the workers, if you like, storming the gate is enough to get the Bastille. The, means the Bastille, he, they're on the way. To well, the he has enough chance in that episode to, and we get to the where he gets to look through the window of the pressure dome. Oh, and the famous cliffhanger, where yes. we see the aliens in their natural environment. Yes, yes. and there's that wonderful. Whereas who? has that wonderful scream mm. for a cliffhanger. There's just that wonderful fade-in of music. And I love the theme music, Mars, Bringer of War. It, it just goes it in there so well. because the, 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 the incidental there, music yeah. that's used is what becomes the title music of Pit later. That sort of fascinates yes. me. But, but yeah. I think that Mars, the Bringer of War, is a, such a powerful piece, isn't it? It really yeah. kicks it in. And appropriate, uh, much appropriate for the first two Quatermass serials. It wouldn't have worked as well with Pitt because it's not, the, the threat isn't the immediate threat. I think also the, it, it might, coming, it might yeah. have, should we say, given the Martian game away a bit. <laughs> Just a bit too early. But yeah, the, uh, and that cliffhanger mm-hmm. is lovely. The, the first time I saw that cliffhanger, I, I was quite sort of, mm-hmm. wow, this is this is 1955? Yeah. Yeah. Really? 
Um, and it's very effective, isn't it? I mean, even, you know, as model work, it's yeah. very effective. It's it's it's. Purposeful. Yeah, uh, and the model work. I have to take my hat off to mm. Jack Klein and uh, and Co for mm. the model work. And they make their appearance later on, they don't do. they? The, yeah. the 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 two visual effects. I love the way the two. Well, they were the entire department, guys. weren't they? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And, and weren't so they created for the this? That they do on is this. That, is, is, am I right that they were pretty much or for um, or for. Quite, or for for, for Quatermass for Cartier's work, it seems. Cartier's work, yes. He, they started off on experiment. And yeah, their biggest challenge, as they always said, was working on 1984 because mm. there's so much mm. to be done in 1984 with walls disappearing mm. and television screens coming out and yeah, and everything running on cue. But I'd say Quatermass is just as hard. But there's a lot of stuff from the visual effects department that's pre-filmed mm. and inserted. But there has to be a certain amount of live gadgetry that works on mm. cue, especially the um, uh, at the end of episode one with the disintegration of with the gas yes. coming out of the uh, uh, the meteorite has to work, mm. doesn't it? And it has to work once, and it has to work the first time, or it's just not going to be you know believable. So yeah, they got a hard. There is job. a wonderful bit on the, the film inserts just before that, and I, I don't know. It's all part and parcel of you know when when those. They're trying to lift that. It looks like a missile, but this—it's some kind. Of, yes, it's the tube. It's a tube containing the gases. Well, yeah. The amount of chain work they have to do for the, that thing—it's <laughs> yes. like they have to really, really work those chains to get that thing to move for like half an inch. It's well, that's the yeah, and we we have to say this is the first TV program that was recorded in BBC Television ah, Centre. Okay, because that bit that you see with them dropping mm. the chains down with the large gas cylinders, is the basement of what wow. was, well, the, the, the boiler area of BBC Television Centre being built. So technically, Quatermass 2 is the first programme to have been filmed there. Which makes it even more amazing that we've still got it, because they seem to throw everything else away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> episode 5, The Frenzy. Frenzy. Which oh. has a different recap now, voice episode... for those reasons we mentioned earlier. Now, this basically is actually yes. a large chunk of what becomes the film as well, but this is basically all the, the riot and the war. Basically, small war that happens inside the refinery, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I would have thought this would have had a warning mm. as well, because it is... It, doesn't hold back. It, it, it's quite ruthless. And the way that the guards slaughter anyone is very ruthless. And the way that it's shot again, sequences a, of people yeah. sliding down walls. It's a cinema verity thing. It's very uh, it's very documentary shot. stuff yeah. as well. I think the interesting Absolutely. thing to me is always how some people fall for the management speak. I feel that's kind of yes. a, a bit of a universal constant, quite frankly. It's that basically rather than, you know, there's been, to persuade the guys out but also to stop them pumping oxygen into the domes yes into the domes they, they, they sort of suddenly come domes, across all yeah. reasonable no come we'll show, we'll give you a tour we'll show you everything's yeah. fine we'll show everything fine and of course the lovely mr mcleod and his silver wedding which he will never see or no he, well, it is yeah, actually his silver wedding when the when this sequence starts goes off with some people who trust him because he is this pillar of the community, he's the shop steward and everything like that. And the next thing yes. we see is uh, it's Ernie, isn't it? Who Lovely little hourly Ernie. <laughs> he says he thought he heard a sound travel down the pipe, is how it starts. Ian Wilson, isn't it? tiny actor, big pebble glasses, big hat. That's it, yes. And yeah. of course, this is where we get that the pipe's been blocked with something. And the something. He puts his hand inside it, so it comes out covered in blood, and you're like, don't do that. And Quatermass is doing it's that. I tried to stop them. Blood. I tried to stop them. You mean, Mac, the others? There are men too. They, they must have taken them and used them to block the pipe. They're, they're jammed in the pipe? A human pulp. The idea of that again. I mean, you've got the yeah. You've got the idea of possession. You've got the uh, that scene with Hugh Conrad. You've got the idea of the the heart stopping one where the child is shot. But actually, that whole thing about the tube. They basically mash the people in to stop the oxygen <sighs> getting in. That. And at that point, your brain is now yeah. doing overtime to actually Even imagine what that was like. It's yeah. imagine what that would be, which like, again yeah. is incredibly. What? I mean, I don't. I mean, I know people are fans of horror movies. I know that, but I think as as, as an image, a mental image, that yes. is. And especially then, live 
Yeah, because that would have been expected to have seen what once or twice because we'd have had mm. the repeat. But planting that thought mm. inside your head, going, and you're going to watch the rest of the episode, and that would mm. sit in the back of your head, going, how did they die? Because I would have got a bit fixated on that because it's touched on, but you know, there's no evidence other than the blood on his hand, is mm. there? And the supposition, it adds, it adds up in your brain. And then, then we have a visual effect. Uh, well, basically, we? what um, happens is that <laughs> there's a handy bazooka. We get Chekhov's bazooka, they pick it up from one of the guards and they use it on one of the domes. And we do get this effect of the dome exploding, which is, I assume it's shot underwater, it looks like... I was going to say, yeah, they filmed a a dome underwater and filmed it with milk and put a a, a little charge inside it. So they Mm. blew it out. So the impression of fog and smoke Mm. coming out, of course the water would mix with Mm. the milk... And you would have, you know, clouds and billows of white milk coming up because it's underwater. It will rise up and infect the water. So that that works really well. I thought that's a really good idea because you can imagine that landing on the How are we going to do that? Yeah. How are we going to do this? And I I like the thought process of them going through, you know, we can do that underwater. But yeah, and then... Loads yeah. of smoke. Location night filter. This is the ammonia, isn't it? Sort of coming out of yeah. the domes. And that dying klaxon in the background always gets me as well. Because that's just signifying the dying Oh, of the yes, and the, and the cut-off, the... Of, yes, and everything like that, with the, the voice stopping mm. and everything. Again, Nigel Neal's voice on the soundtrack. And, of course, basically, Quatermass escapes. We're not quite sure how many others actually get out of the plant are we we see people running but no you hear you hear the helicopters coming but there's not much sign of the the you know because that's basically the end of the of course for the feature film there's some there's some guards shooting at people isn't there still who are wearing gas for for the feature film that's where it finishes pretty much you know that's that's a resolution however Quatermass escapes and goes back to the rocket base. He's he's determined to destroy the asteroid from whence these aliens are coming. We have to say that he's collected by Hugh though, um, by Leo. He, he meets. Well, this is the thing. He meet he meets yeah. Leo, who's been. It's so easy to say just yeah. Hugh. Who's been over? Who's been overcome in his car? We assume by the mist. Yeah. Although he does start to act, he does his suspicious acting. Again, there's some lovely bits in episode six, the destroyers. Interesting when you parallel the episode six title with the Doctor Who serial that's on at the moment. But let's not go there. Just (laughs) thought I'd throw that in. But yeah, he does some wonderful side eye acting when he's in the spaceship. (laughs) Where you know there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the boy from from Wales. Welsh dodgy eyes. So we'll, I mean, we are actually we're way over time here. So we will, we'll, we'll, we'll skitter through. But the episode six is is seen yeah. as the weakest part of it, isn't it? Really, in many ways, it is. Unfortunately, you know, it's quite clear they've run out of money as well. There's the the spacesuits aren't the best. But then again, there's some lovely science. I mean, you actually get. When he because Leo effectively oh lots of pseudo science starts he, to appear, when he sets it? off the machine gun which probably wouldn't fire in that atmosphere but but when he sets off the machine gun yeah. the the recoil does take him off and funnily enough when you see the Leo spinning in space that's very two thousand and one it's almost that image mm-hmm. went through to two thousand and one later so I, I think there's, there's, it's interesting the again the influence oh is that where Hal opens mm. the airlock and one of them yeah. goes out the airlock but you you see this figure spinning to infinity and you think that's again that's yeah. such an influence on 2001 from Quatermass 2 so there we are you have to a quick touch upon the planet which is Hesse, <laughs> the, the, planet planet, Hesse. the only planet that I've ever seen but entirely possible if that's what swings mm. your boat but yeah they unfortunately they didn't have the money to build a planet well it's it's wonderful isn't it because they even remark on it you know that this them launching into space and landing on an alien world should have been a high point for humanity, and it's yeah. two old geezers trying to take, t- trying to destroy an alien invasion. <laughs> two old man, yes, to on a kamikaze mission, isn't it? So yes, but they succeed. Unfortunately, but we- yes, it's basically Quatermass has basically is he going to use this rocket motor from the first episode, which makes the title all the more relevant uh, you know <laughs> yes. it's actually been seeded throughout the plot that this bad nuclear motor that blew up in australia is yes. going to destroy the asteroid and everything will be fine but there is an escape clause quatermass does manage to escape despite the strange 
tendrils that surround the main part of the yes again the, the <laughs> rocket and uh, obviously we lose we do lose Leo Pugh and uh, his benefit to mankind yeah. there is actually a, a jump cut do like Leo it's going to take ten hours for this flight. And we actually cut to 10 hours later where Quatermass is knocking back a gin or whatever it is he gets off the shell. <laughs> trolley dolly coming through with the trolley. Duty free for mm. you, sir. But actually, yes, and we, and we lose Leo in that process. But a, a, a wonderful performance yes. from Hugh Griffith, really. And and I, I, I think it's fair yes. to say that John Robinson is actually is very good in this. Well, I mean, I, I, I is, can understand yeah. it probably felt it wasn't his bag he probably various reasons why he didn't want to come back and do another one but to be fair if john robinson had decided to come back we wouldn't have got the great performance from andre morel in in quatermass well andre morel i just want to throw this one in was originally approached to be the original quatermass which would have been interesting yes i think it would would have been interesting i I think it would have been strangely i don't know whether it'd be better or worse but the, the fact that the actor kept changing Probably doesn't, have, but I again that is kind of what fifties television did. Sometimes yeah. actors would get replaced because it was all being filmed. They're not available, are they? Like yeah. So actually, I don't think. I mean, I, I, I suspect you would have noticed if George Dixon had, had changed the actor sort of three episodes in. But the fact is, there's a gap. I, I think television was watched differently, and also it was watched. I mean, you couldn't watch repeats. You couldn't, but also it was watched yes. by fewer people. But actually, people's memories, you know, they might remember it might have been someone else last time, but I don't think it might, the story was more important than necessarily who was playing it. Well, absolutely. It would have been sold on the Quatermass aspect of the, the story. It would have been on the reputation of the first mm. serial. And I like the way that Quatermass experiment is a thriller Indeed. in six parts. And this is, this is a television play in mm. six parts. So, yeah, it's an interesting way they, they tag things. Uh, I think there's a more of a maturity towards the way that they produce TV But, it, now. but it's a very grown-up story, isn't it? There's the re- it's a very grown-up world, yeah. It's, it's, but, but television isn't like that, though, is it? Television was deeply mm. controlled but, to a certain extent, especially the BBC. This is pushing the envelope, but it's also very, very... I mean, it, it's very real world. It's very now. I mean, I mean we talk about things like Play for yes. Today, 10 years later, and everything like that. But actually, Quatermass, Nigel Neal, what he was doing there was taking that thing that science fiction writers did was to smuggle some very subversive stuff under the radar, dressed up oh, as science yes. fiction. Yeah. So we are sort of wrapping up now. What? How would you... I mean, I know you've said already, really, but how would you rate Quatermass 2 on reflection, watching it again? You see, I put it on par with mm. Pitts. But in terms of everything, Very I mean, much so. as a piece of television... As a piece you... of television, it's an absolute mm. masterpiece. It's a mm. masterclass. It's a masterclass of taking the written mm. word and managing, actually actually physically managing to get everything up there mm. on the screen and portray it in mm. such a way that your audience isn't going to go, this is either high, too highbrow mm. for us, which happened a lot with television then, or this is just rubbish, I mm. don't want to watch it. it. Well, the rating said it all. When we, the last episode's 9 million. 9 yes. million in 1955. Yeah. We, we're happy now with some certain programmes getting 9 <laughs> million viewers. Well, they do say that sh- shows um, won't but, get that anymore, don't they? I mean, you know. Yeah. If you're looking at the amount of television sets that were about then, yeah. So, no, I think it is a stands as a wonderful piece of mm. television drama. I really do. And it also stands as a really, really good rock for Nigel Neal to stand on mm. top of and go, I ain't started yet. This is my foundation. I'm going to build on it. I think it's wonderful. And you really do see the seeds, wonderful. don't you, in, in of, of a lot of his future oh, writing yeah. in this. Yes. Well, he's sowing those seeds from standing yeah. on the rock. He's throwing I mean, them out. Again, the structurally, audience, I think, personally, I think Pitt works better in terms of that building from a small thing. Well, Pitt's the reworking of the ghost yeah. story, isn't it? It's the traditional reworking yeah. of the ghost story with the modern aspect of racism, waste, hatred, war. All, all of those things. Uh, but I think as a purely yeah. science fiction story, Quatermass 2 is is up there, isn't it, really? You know? and certainly yeah, being absolutely. produced for television yeah. audiences, you have to remember at the time, they hadn't seen Star Trek. They hadn't seen... None of these other things existed. Yeah. This was kind of coming out of them out of the blue, really. It was, it was from nowhere. I, I imagine that a lot of the British audience didn't 
necessarily read science fiction particularly. I know there'd be films already, but well, a turn of the century would have been mm. science fiction, wouldn't it? Really, but um, no, I mean, for, in terms of television, so just purely got, in terms of television. In te- terms of television, no, not at all. I mean, this is pre only by a year invasion of the mm. body snatchers, so that would have come over here in fifty six. So you could imagine an audience sitting down there, starting to watch that game. <laughs> that, that was on last year on the BBC, wasn't it? Have you come to see a repeat? <laughs> but, but there is so much that stems from Quatermass 2 to modern day science fiction that we are looking at it quite and I think regularly uh, there's an, still an, an now. There's an awful lot of American science fiction writers who cite those the movies that were based on these serials as yes. an influence. Yes, very so. much. I think, you know, the the strength of that story. I mean, I genuinely feel that both Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2, uh, which were made into the Hammer films in the uh, the 50s, they absolutely stand up as films, but also it shows the strength of the original teleplays, you know. I mean, yes, okay, they had to cut out lots of the stuff that's there purely to let scene changes go on in the other side of the studio and all that kind yeah. of thing. But I think it's, a, it's an incredible strength to these stories that holds up. Oh, definitely. And, um, I mean, Quintermass in the Pit, the film rockets mm. along. But you don't feel it loses anything, by the way, no. it rockets along. I still have a preference for the TV version over the film of Quintermass in the Pit, but that is more... Oh, naturally. But naturally, it's also, I yeah. think, it yeah, no, works no. better in black and white. I know a lot of people like, like no, no, colorizing and like thinking that if they could have made things in colour, they would have done. But I actually think part of what makes the 50s Quatermass serials so good and the first two films is the black and whiteness on that stark documentary feel it's very really stark. really yeah. helps it's very stark it's that stark world yeah. that it's based in as well because the 50s as we said earlier was just so yeah. well it was it was drab so and horrible and we so. don't want it back thank you very much it was almost a sort of a forever horizon yeah. isn't it there's no end to the horizon Indeed. for the 1950s well thank yeah, you very been, much for chatting about been an Quatermass absolute 2 pleasure. today. It really has been an absolute pleasure. No, thank you. Because it is a joy. It's, it's always thank a joy you. to rewatch it. Uh, it is. I keep feeling I've watched it twice this week. I do feel I might have to put it on again. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just a wonderful piece of television. And thank you very much for talking me through it tonight. Many thanks to Warren for joining me for that epic chat about the rather brilliant piece of classic television that is Quatermass 2. Once we'd realised that we'd overshot our allotted running time talking about it, I invited Warren to give me his impressions of another classic collaboration between the BBC, Rudolf Cartier and Nigel Neal, first broadcast just under a year earlier in December 1954, their twice-performed live adaptation of George Orwell's novel 1984, the recording of at least one version of which does survive, but is quite difficult for modern viewers to track down. It is worth it, though, because it stars one of Warren's favourite actors, Peter Cushing, alongside Yvonne Mitchell, Donald Pleasance, Leonard Sachs, and another actor associated with a later Quatermass serial, Andre Morel, alongside a couple of prolific actors and familiar television faces who would also both appear in Quatermass 2, Wilfred Bramble and Hilda Fenimore, because in the end all things are connected. So let's head off back to 1954's vision of 1984 with Warren to guide us. This is one man's alarmed vision of the future. A future which he felt might, with such dangerous ease, be brought about. I thought it might be nice if we also talked about some other works from the BBC in the 1950s that involved both Nigel Neal and Rudolf Cartier. Yeah. So I thought we might talk briefly about 1984. And this very day, the BFI have announced that it's going to be released. So when we talk about this, people will finally have the chance to see it legitimately. I know we both watched this to do this conversation, but yes, <clears throat> so we had to get mm. some fairly ucky versions of it before they vanished off YouTube. <laughs> well, funnily enough, how I got my copy was a bizarre. Can, can I tell you a quick, 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 quick? Mm. 
I've always looked through a, a greasy sort of smoky haze and never been able to get anything with a good copy. So it wasn't till about 10 years ago that I got a decent copy. Right. And the guy I was working with, he's reading 1984. I said, oh, bit of Orwell. Mm-hmm. You like old television. I went, You've got this free black and white DVD. And I go, what? Well, you and would. Well, he bought the book and DVD came as a pack over in America. Right. I knew it was available in America. I mean, it is actually, yeah. you can import it. Uh, you can get US copies even now. But it's become very difficult to get in Britain, hasn't it? Yes. And I got mine, I, I sent off to the States for mine because it was mm. region free. Mm. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be a really bad copy or mm. it's going to be hacked pieces. And I went, oh my word, I can see it. <laughs> there's no fog. I can see it. I can hear the quality. And there's no crackling on the soundtrack, which is good. And wow performances in that were just enhanced well this is it 1984 was produced in 1954 uh, december as we have already uh, discussed so basically this was the second big collaboration between rudolf cartier and nigel and rudolf cartier actually asked for neil he actually specifically asked for him to do the adaptation apparently there'd been a few proposed versions of it. Now, it's what we've got to remember, really, is that 1984 as a novel at this stage is only six years old. Yeah, it came out in 49, didn't it? Um, five years old, sorry. Yes, five, five years yeah, old. yeah, it came out in 49. And I always yeah. think it came out in 48 because of the reversal in the in the title. But yes. It wasn't yeah. published until the year after. It was written in 48. Well, it, originally, the treatment wasn't done by Nigel Neal. Mm. Uh, another writer had done the treatment, and it just wasn't up to what Rudolf Cartier wanted. And he mm. was going, get me Neil, get me Neil. Mm. He's the only man who can do now, this. Now, they'd worked on Quatermass Experiment the year before, hadn't they? Was that they had indeed, three, yeah. And they'd empty the pubs, and everybody yeah. got in, and it got a, a marvellous response. Then there were 50 people in a living room watching a two-inch screen. It must have been delightful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you recently rewatched Experiment? What exists of Experiment? Yes, I went to the um, one of the many BFI showings mm. of Experiment, mm. and I sat next to a film cameraman from the BBC mm. from the 1950s. And whilst I'd never seen Quatermass Experiment, the two existing episodes at that point. He sat yeah. next to me and told me how they were filming stuff. Well, I was thinking, <laughs> shut up, I just want to watch it. Uh, but they also, it was before they had the box set release, so they had mm. Mark Gatiss up there, and they played the interview with Nigel Neal. Mm. Some of the bits that had to be edited out of the actual DVD box mm. set because Nigel Neal is quite a plain speaker <laughs> when he comes to describing members of the BBC management. Mm. But um, he took on this job, mm-hmm. and by his own words, as a dare mm. because he thought he'd never get away with it mm. because they did a, uh, in 1965, late night lineup, looked back at 1984, mm. and they had Yvonne Mitchell, Peter Cushing, Andre Morale. Rudolf Coulter and mm. Nigel Neal all talking mm. about the program and the usual furore that had taken place. Mm. But Nigel Neal just turned around and said, I wanted to do it. I didn't think the BBC would really let me do it. So mm. I had a little dare with myself that I would mm. make it as edgy as possible. Mm. And Rudolf went, this isn't edgy enough. <laughs> and well, that's the that's interesting thing, thing isn't it? it yeah? Because Neil isn't, uh, he is considered to be a science fiction writer, but he didn't consider himself to be one. Yeah. And Quatermass Experiment riffs quite heavily on science fiction and, and obviously his rockets and monsters and all this kind of thing. So, but wrapped up in that ghost story ethos, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. So coming forward and 1984, which is like, say, about a year later, what do you make of it? If I was to come in now and look at it from the eyes of 21st century, I would say mm. it's very tame. Mm. But you have to place yourself in the fact that we're less than nine years after the war ended. Mm. And a totalitarian state, this is what could have happened if things mm. hadn't gone the way they had. The way they were treating Winston in this, it's almost prisoner of war death camp. Mm. So you've yes. got your prisoner of war veterans, uh, your Japanese mm. war veterans would have been watching that and it would have brought back some painful memories. And but Peter Cushing, who is the star, is I, mean, I know he's one of oh, my favourite actors anyway, but yeah. uh, he has a wonderfully gaunt face, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He's <laughs> amazing. He's, he's in his early 40s in this as well, isn't he? And it's one it's, of his earliest 
film role or television role, isn't it? Yes, it is. He did a few bits and pieces in America because he went off to America mm. during the Second World War. Then he came back over to Britain and, and did a lot of stage work. He got well known in, in 1945 for doing a government health film pretending to mm. be a doctor talking to the audience and that was shown in all the uh, movie theatres. But yeah, television, he suddenly realised that there's this new medium of television and they're desperate for quality mm. actors. By God, he doesn't hold back in this performance. Mm. I love the fact that he you got that inner monologue going on, mm. especially when you're having the five minutes of hate, the hate yes. session. I think the interesting thing about the production of this is that what you get, the fact that it was tele-recorded at all, yeah. in terms of, we talked about this with Quaid of Us too, the fact that it has survived this long and is available in any format at all is remarkable in itself, considering the vast amount of 50s television that doesn't exist. But what's interesting about this kind of television is it was performed live on a oh, Sunday night, yeah. and then they actually did it again the following Thursday, and the version that we can see was the telerecording of the second performance, wasn't it? I don't think we would have had a telerecording if the first performance hadn't have had the impact that it did. Hadn't have had oh, well, I mean, the questions in the house, as yeah. it were. And that was in the days when you could trust your politicians. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this was part of the series of plays called The Sunday Night Theatre. Hmm on the BBC, and the majority of that doesn't exist. Things like The Creature, mm. which was also a collaboration between yes. Rudolf Cartier and Nigel Neal, which went mm. on to be the Hammer film known as The Abominable Snowman. Mm. I mean, that was another Cushing thing as well, and that had Stanley mm. Baker in the supporting role. So mm. most of those do not exist. Most of that mm. Sunday Night Theatre does not exist. So if we hadn't had the Furore, we would not have 1984. They recorded it in case people they were litigious. There was the other thing, of course, that they'd had a bomb threat. Ah. And the statistic side of the BBC tells me they could have filmed this and then somebody would have blown up Lime Grove and at least they would have had that for posterity. <laughs> you see, what interests me is, of course, obviously in terms of the production, there are filmed inserts. There's you know, bits in the woodland and everything like that. Yeah. I believe that the two-minute hate sequences pre-recorded it well. is that is actually filmed in alexandra palace right along with the canteen right and these yeah. are played into the broadcast as they cover set changes they are the, the bit of woodland is of just down mm. from alexandra palace right and the scenes that you have of peter cushing's character smith mm. walking through the bombed out areas well, that's actually not a bombed out area it's a demolished area where bbc mm. television centers going right so Peter Cushing says um, in the late night lineup program, he says, when we were going through the areas, that, uh, initially we were going to do bomb sites, but we couldn't find mm. anywhere quiet enough to just film this. Mm. I think his memory sort of cheats there somewhat because there was no sound. It was yes. The music was mm. played over. But he's convinced that was, yeah, they went down the road because it makes total sense because of costing to go to the site they were clearing for BBC Television Centre. Mm. I think the thing that sometimes intrigues me, though, about these kinds of programs if you like <laughs> is the actor who turns up on sunday if he goes away from it thinking oh i was a bit rubbish does he give a completely different performance on well yeah rodolf cartier would take people to one side and go mm. you better up the game next week because mm. i want you to do this next week rudolf cartier was brilliant because he'd always tweak it it would never be quite the same performance as it was mm. the sunday before if we're going into the repeat and I just have this vision of somebody just completely <laughs> playing it. Complete, because it's live, they can't stop you. And you're going, yeah. no, I'm going to do it as Hamlet. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> I, uh, what do you, oh, talking of very powerful performances, what about the little brat? <laughs> yes. I was going to talk through the cast with you anyway. Oh, right, okay. The, the Parsons boy and the Parsons girl. Yes. That, yes. They yeah. are... I mean, in terms of creations of Orwell, they are the ones who are going to dob in their parents, basically. Yeah, yeah. It is one of the more... Because it's quite subtly approached, that, isn't it? You know, yes. you don't, they don't actually sort of stand there and point and, and do the sort of the whole Stanley Kubrick violins and what have you, screams and everything like that. But the fact is that the sinister thing that they've got control because they are this youth cult, if you like, and... Yeah, they are a terrifying pair, really. <laughs> They're very static, yes, but they control the scene with the pitch and tone of their voice. They create guilt, and that's a good thing. They And they make you feel uncomfortable. And 
as a person watching, you think you just need a good slap on the backside for this to bring you. Well, and then you and think in the fifties, the they probably would have yeah. got them as well. Yeah, and you think of the situation there, and you're thinking, no, 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 all everything's been removed from people. The way they're fed things, the way they're mm. educated, it's almost battery chicken, isn't it? Well, again, it's the fear of that kind of totalitarianism, yeah. isn't it? I mean, the girl is played by Pamela Grant and the boy is played by Keith Davis. Neither of them had particularly spectacular careers. It's like they were hired on the day. I often wonder whether they just happened to be the children of somebody who was working on the... Well, it's, it's, it's like the Quatermass 2 girl, isn't it? Who looks? Mm. No, I mean, obviously this is an acting performance. It is different. <laughs> yes. Grab the first kid and say, say these words. <laughs> all, all I can imagine is the poor old sound recordist's ears must have been bleeding whilst yeah. he was listening to that scene. So I suppose, I'm assuming most people who are listening would know basically what 1984 is about. But it's based on the novel by George Orwell. It is basically a story of a future Britain 30 years in the future in the case as at the time of broadcast of an idea of Britain which is part of we are basically at war with everybody or who are we at war with this week and of course all of their lives are being manipulated through view screens through manipulation of the media and we're on the cusp of rewriting history they are working I mean one of the characters is working on a dictionary that will remove any kind of yeah. Any any kind of language that has any passion, any uh, imagination in it, which again yeah. feels very prescient sometimes. You're talking about war, but the question that comes into my mind, because they refer to him as him, it's, it's Goldstein. Played by Arnold Diamond. You wouldn't put it past this authoritarian society to actually be orchestrating a false war itself the war doesn't Mm. exist because you always hear the bombs going off in the background Mm. but is that a controlling mechanism Mm. so there are so many questions there because big brother there's no person who is big brother it is a conglomerate isn't it it is although the actual face we see is one of the effects guys isn't it roy oxley yeah roy oxley (laughs) He was a designer for the BBC. <laughs> he just looked. He obviously was a very stern man. Who's the, who's got the sternest? Can you imagine if he's got he's got kids and he walks in? The, you know, on Monday morning, the kids walk into the sitting room and there's like this picture hanging on the wall. Morning, Big Brother. Well, of course, this is a society where people will go to the public hangings for entertainment yeah. and, and things like that. And the, and the banality of that kind of wickedness, that kind of awful, awful government uh, action, is just. It's so matter-of-fact, and their lives are so empty, even, you know. Well, they're they're there to work, aren't they? That's all they do. And, of course, we forget that there are the proles. There's the society. It's it's kind of like in other programmes, you've got the people inside the dome and these people outside the dome. You've got the outliers, you've got the savages or whatever you want to call them, and you've got the elite. And, actually, the people we're seeing would technically call themselves the elite, wouldn't they? They I mean, the first time we meet our hero, Winston Smith, as played by Peter Cushing, he's amending the news, isn't he? He's he's going through the record and changing history. In the Ministry of Truth. One line at a time. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And there's that wonderful thing where everybody's complaining they don't have razor blades. Mm. And then an announcement comes out that razor blade production's gone up by 40% in this great cheer from the crowd of people going, brilliant, that's brilliant. And they walk away and somebody, <laughs> one of them says to him, have you got any uh, razor blades, old man? No, I haven't. Oh, well, this one I'll have to make do for another six weeks. Uh, yeah. But yet there's no correlation of the two two bits connecting together are there their lives are awful i mean is this basically supposed to be our idea of what was happening beyond the iron curtain to us i think very much so i mean there's always been this argument that it was about the bbc it's about the no no yeah quite right i was trying to find the subtle way of placing that but there's no subtle way of doing it It was orwell's experience of the bbc that's made him Mm. write this Mm. i think it's a mixture of a lot of things but i don't think it is as simple as looking at stalin's russia i don't Mm. think it's as simple as that because then the whole concept the whole book would be broken down into so many small simplistic terms historically orwell had gone and fought fascism in spain hadn't he so yeah it wasn't like he was (laughs) pro-right-wing he wasn't trying to bring down the stalin government by any stretch of the imagination or the 
government. Would you call it a government? I don't know. It's a, but, uh, proletariat. The, the Stalin, suppose, yeah. yeah, the regime, I suppose. He's, he didn't. He wasn't in sort of chasing regime change. He was actually just sort of... <laughs> <laughs> he was just saying, it's a satire. It's like a lot of Orwell's work. It's a satire when, when yes, it's said and done. it um, is. There's also a wonderful thing. It made me think of the goodies where, where they're going on that <laughs> domestic string. <laughs> yes. The availability of string. Can I just... String was such an important part of 1950s Britain. <laughs> it held us. It held the fabric of society together. <laughs> well, there's that wonderful piece as well. Do you know the story about the snow globe? Go on. So when they go to... This is Peter Cushing's story, actually. When they went mm. to do rehearsals, there was a lovely figurine. Right. A Victorian small figurine in silver that he was mm. going to give to uh, Yvonne Mitchell after visiting, of all people mm. whose shop, it, uh, Mr. Sachs's shop, wasn't Leonard it? Sachs. Leonard yes. Sachs. But Leonard he's Sachs. as creepy as heck in it as well. I always think it's interesting seeing Leonard Sachs acting. Yes. Yeah, just because you get so used to his comparing. Mr. Charrington, he plays. Mr. Charrington, yeah. It's such a quiet... and I mean, when you when you consider 1950s broadcasting television, etc., etc., it's that sense that... People felt that you had to play because they they're all theatre people. And, Very much and so. They yeah. had to play it big and everything like that. But it's actually this is Mrs. Television learning how to master that quiet, small, and absolutely devastating yeah. performance. It's that Hartnell idea of the hands by the face when you're doing the because the screen's only this big, isn't it? And and focusing people in on that. But he was so. Why did you have a look at this? And so when they go to do it. When they're about to go to do it live, they're setting up the props, and it's been nicked. <laughs> and they are left, and same so they're old, left, same old. They're left with a Mickey Mouse snow globe. Such a pretty thing. <laughs> yes, so, and I always laugh. It's such a pretty thing, this, don't you think? <laughs> and he has it, and because there's a small figure of Mickey Mouse that you can't see it because of the resolution. But oh. I just have this thought of them doing it live for the first time and trying not to laugh. Do we think that that actually disappeared between the two showings? Do you think there was a figurine on some? No, the, 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 <laughs> no, it was only in rehearsal for the first right. show and when right. they went to it and they went you'll have to ad-lib with this it's all we right. can get quickly they said there's a Mickey Mouse snow globe <laughs> Right. So, uh, this, uh, Mr. Charrington, of course, has this strange shop, which is at, again in the area where the prole. I love the sign. The, was it the, the sign about the proles? What's the, what's the, what's on the wall? Because you see these massive signs, which again. Oh, you're entering the prole zone, isn't it? <laughs> Something along those lines. Yeah. And we go to the pub as well, don't they? They go to that wonderful and every. Oh, well, the pub scene. I mean, again, one. It's fabulous because you get Wilfred Bramble, who is. But Wilfred Bramble's to playing two separate parts in this. That's right. <laughs> but in the first part, he's an old git. Yeah. Talking <laughs> about ever. wearing a top hat when he went to his sister's funeral. But also going it? on about you can't buy a pint because you've got to buy all these litres and half litres. Oh, yeah. kind of that strikes a chord with the modern <laughs> modern audience. Does it not? <laughs> <laughs> the way he says, I'll have a pint. You'll have a litre. I'll have a pint. <laughs> it's almost old man steptoe, isn't it? I'm afraid so. You are now entering Prol Sector Number N1. That's it. Do you see? Again, the wonderful thing about this production is the simplicity of the sets in many ways yeah. actually helps it. I mean, it, one, it hasn't dated it as it might have done if someone had tried to make it look like a vision of the future and sort of covered all the walls with tinfoil or whatever. <laughs> you know, it actually, the grimness of the 50s oh. works well for the grimness of the Absolutely. fictional 80s, really. And the idea that we would be monitored, mm. and I, I love the idea of the small little Vizzy screens in, mm. in the houses, because we're almost like that with things like Alexa, aren't we? Oh, or yeah. even by this medium that we're using now, mm. uh, <laughs> or, or CCTV cameras on the street. So, But I just liked that idea of when they went into Leonard Sachs's uh, dodgy upstairs bedroom. Uh, well, this, of course, is Julia Dixon and Winston Smith, who are... Julia is played by Yvonne Mitchell. In yes. This. Very well-known uh, film actress. And they have an illicit romance which is not allowed. <laughs> they touch. <laughs> Old hands. Uh, yes. 
Yes, because all that sort of thing, down with that sort of thing. Well, in the book, she's quite flighty, isn't she? I won't use the term that I was going to use, but she's quite flighty and easy, I think the word is we're looking for. 50s television, isn't it? But then again, I mean, she has managed to conceal her bubbling sexuality by wearing the the sash of... um, I saw her bubbling sexualities. The the sash of celibacy or whatever it's That's right. She was in the anti-sex league, wasn't she? The anti-sex league, yes, indeed. And of course, <laughs> later on, we do get a lovely scene where they go to the porno sec, which I, I love the way you cleared your throat before you said that, as if it was very delicately put. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, having 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 been in the anti-sex league. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, and of course, then you do get the porno set, which of course, and there's one of the scene where they're all standing in front of these signs. <laughs> and of course, they give themselves <laughs> up to O'Brien. They give yeah. themselves up to O'Brien because oh. they are so naive. But he, they yeah, but O'Brien's and, and their own downfall comes from their own their own activities. Yeah, it does. I like. I really do because O'Brien is there from the very beginning, isn't he? He's in mm. the background. He's always in the background. He's a sort of lurking presence. I mean, he's in the opening scene. Isn't yeah, he? and I like Andre Morel. I... Hands on Probel. This is it. I mean, Andre Morel, yeah. fabulous. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the great television actors of the 1950s, really, who's, who, strangely enough, I mean, we, you do see him pop up in things in the 60s, but I think if more 50s television survived, he, oh, would, yes. be thought, he would be classed in the same, you know, people yeah. talk about Burton and, you know, and other you know, great screen actors, but... Andre Morel actually is one of the great actors of his generation, certainly in terms of television. Andre Morel was very much like Peter Cushing when it came to television, because Andre Morel was a great stage Shakespearean actor. Mm. But when television came along and he went, I don't want to be a stage actor, what can I do to expand? All my shouting in the evenings. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And then he saw television and he just went with that. And with the television came his film career as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Andre Morel is just, you see, I think his performance is better than Cushing's I really do because he causes me a lot of angst because he's enjoying what he's doing Mm. his character is enjoying a lot of what he's doing I mean he's got this great swathe of white hair acting as a sort of halo hasn't he and yeah and he gets a lot of very sinister close-ups he's got a great face for those close-ups and those little glasses as well Yes, oh, but it's the banality of evil, isn't it? It's the yes. banality of evil. He and he plays that. So I mean, the, the wonderful thing about 1984 as a 1950s television production is it's so understated. It's not even particularly shrill on the received pronunciation. It's actually very down and dirty. Yeah, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I know the actors will obviously. They're all the performances yes. probably look a little uh, stilted or different to a modern audience. But it's down there. It's gritty. It's gritty. It's you want to wash your hands after watching it, don't yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, there's a lovely little cameo by Donald Pleasance, isn't there? Oh, I love. Again, he's he's at the start of his screen career, isn't mm. he? At that point. But there's so much there. And did you notice the little ensemble that goes on with the actors that appeared? The the Cartier. I call them the Cartier cast. <laughs> <laughs> who appeared in Quatermass Experiment, mm. and they sort of bleed and, through into 1984 as well. Well, Hilda Fenimore, of course, yeah. is the mother of that gaunt-looking girl in Quatermass 2 who we were talking about. I mean, she plays the mother in that, and she's in this as Mrs. Parsons, who's about to get dobbed in by the children. And you've got Len, who is in Quatermass Experiment, who's mm. the barman. That's right. In the Prol pub, isn't he? Who won't serve mm. pints. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They are his favourites. You you do see his, his sort of favourites who turn up again and again and again in all sorts of productions. We now know it is going to get a proper release later yes, in the year. Yes, well overdue. And, and, well and I know a lot of people have been waiting for it for a very long time. So we perhaps shouldn't spoil it. I mean, I, I say we shouldn't spoil the ending because we know what happens. I mean, that last 10 minutes oh. is basically given over to our heroes have been captured and it's the torture of... Peter Cushing's character, Winston Smith, by O'Brien, in a strange human-shaped coffin. I'm so glad you brought it up, because I was about to say, could we mention the coffin? Because it's almost like a pre-packed, there's only one way out of this for you, and if you don't agree with what we're doing, we're just going to put the lid off and throw you in the ground. Mm. But it was that, it was just a, again, it was the Andre Morale leaning into the coffin to talk Mm. to Peter Cushing, and just how Mm. many fingers, how many fingers. Mm. 
And then there's that chilling, chilling line from him. He said, if you want a vision of the future, mm. imagine a boot stamping on the face of humanity. Mm. And it's forever. just a, forever. <laughs> yeah. It's the, and there's that, there's almost a small pause before he says forever. Mm. And it's just the way Andre Morel does that. And when you mm. do those torture scenes, and this is the other thing that I got about it. It's low resolution, mm. but they've turned the lights down. They really turned mm. the shadow work. It, the, the shadows there are creating that more claustrophobic and that more mm. closing in. You're not going anywhere. The only place you're going is towards the darkness rather than towards the light. Well, you, you get a palpable sense of life under fear. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the, the people who, who okay, do you think they'll kill me? Do you think they'll, or, or not me, them, and all this kind of thing? People, what they will do to survive and what they will do to make somebody else the victim. Uh, yes, yes. That is kind of, I suppose that's in many ways the thrust of the whole thing. But we also, we do eventually, strangely enough, because this is the thing that actually people who talk about it talk about the, the sequence with the rats, don't they? Yeah. The lovable the lovable painted rats, as, <laughs> as they have become to be, be known. But the sequence with the rats is actually very, very short. It, it's almost again, a blink and you miss it, isn't it? There's, and it's and it's an implication. Yes, you know the helmet is set up. This will happen. They will come at your face like bullets. Yeah, and all. I mean that you don't. None of that happens. It's all implied, and that's what got the actual production into so much trouble. Yeah, uh, um, but the, the the thing is, it's, it's the implication they've put into the head of Winston because he's he hates rats. Mm. So it's yeah, but yeah, it was the the thought of. You know, we're ready to rock and roll. They're not going to show this. They're not going to show this, are they? And the, the audience mean, the, the, is going down this cul-de-sac where... The, well, I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you could say now that audiences, modern audiences, desensitised and would find that all quite ridiculous. But actually, as we talked about with Quatermass 2, it's the stuff that hangs in your head, the idea. I mean, it's like that human pulp line that we yeah. talked about. The image that it puts in your head is much more powerful in many ways than all the slasher and all the gore and all the what have you, that you can actually Absolutely. see on the screen all the time. I'm sort of asking, do you think 50s audiences were more sensitive or it's just because it hadn't been done yet? Has it been a sort of step, a sort of staircase to more and more explicit violence? I, 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 I think because of the period in time and so close to the war, mm. I think people are still of a sensitive nature. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Mm. People are still recovering in themselves. Mm. But I think a scene like that, because mm. you, if you've made it all the way to that scene, you've been mm. on a hell of a journey to get there. Mm. This film is uh, an hour and, what, 15 minutes, more yeah. or less, isn't it? And television had never done anything like this. Never, no. never taken away the cosiness of you sitting at home. And mm. I think that's what one of the big things was. All of a sudden, watching this drama, all right, if you're looking at a small small screen but this mm. drama has sucked away that protection of your home from mm. around you you've been pulled into it and you're and complicit aren't you you're watching somebody being tortured on your you're winston smith to a certain extent yes. aren't you yeah but you're also watching are you the person waiting to be tortured yeah you're a voyeur to a certain extent and maybe yeah. that was what was more disturbing for people to see and of course like you say people who are alive who would have suffered in japan and what have you would have yeah. been seeing this in their homes and it's funny we do forget context quite often when people talk about oh that's lame that's rubbish or you know whatever they forget the context that this was seen in. Yeah, absolutely. We are running out of time again, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, quickly then, oh, can I just throw this in? Very quickly. I yeah. have to say, John Hodkish, who created the incidental music, pushed mm. and pushed and pushed to Rudolf Cartier and says, if we're going to do this, you're going to do this. We're going to have we're going to have an orchestra. Right. And they did the music live, and they were in another right. studio watching it on a monitor. And that helps it so much, because Cartier just hated soundtracks. Didn't they just get carried into the plot? <laughs> yeah. I can't play me fiddle, I'm watching this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they were getting so absorbed into there, they mm. had to be cued in because they were so absorbed into it. Wow. And so basically, briefly, we should touch on the coda. The coda is, of course, that both our heroes are broken. Julia and Winston are broken yes. By, yes. by the torture. I mean, you get that scene where Peter Cushing is screaming, "No, don't do it to me, do it to her. Do it to her, yes, yes. Because at the end of the day, if they find your Achilles heel, mm. 
You're always going to sell someone else down the river, aren't you? That's right. Save and, we go, and we cut back to the cafe where a lot of the action has taken place. Uh, the gin cafe, it. isn't it? They all, the they all drink cafe. gin. Um, it's almost Victoriana in certain respects, isn't it? This is the, the, the Well, they're gins. living in a world where there are no imports and yeah. you can't get French wine because they're Europe. Uh, <laughs> oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> and they medicate them with alcohol, don't they, really? So should the title really be 2022? <laughs> <laughs> Answers but, on uh, a postcard. But I think the other interesting thing is that in that final scene, Peter Cushing looks knackered. He looks like he's he has he yeah. genuinely looks like. But also, so does Julia. Yes, she's broken. I completely get the impression broken. that's actually played as if she's not wearing any makeup at all. It's either that or they've made her up to. Look, I'll up tell you what, her structure of her face, mm. her bone structure looks mm. because it isn't accentuated with the makeup. Mm. Just looks as if all the skin is just hanging on her. Mm. And she looked gaunt. And it was quite shocking to see the first time. It really is quite shocking to see. And you're looking at that going, but Julia was beautiful. And now she isn't. She looks as though she's aged by 20 years. Well, I think that, again, I I know we could only really touch briefly on this uh, today. But that actual, that shows the strength, I think, of production in the 50s. You know, people like say old telly, blah, blah, blah. But that, I think, overall, the strength of what was done just through performance, through makeup, through very, very simple bits of costuming. I think that's amazing. And you get that final close-up, of course, as in the book where Winston has, yes. has learned to love Big Brother. And it's a, dis- it's a disturbing... The final image is, of course, the close-up of Big Brother himself. But yes. that disturbing close-up of Peter Cushing, is, it, it, it does live with you, doesn't it? It does hold you. It does. It does. He's a shell of a man. He's just a shell. Yes. Now, I know you're a Cushing fan, Mm -hmm. as we've talked about in various places, but do you feel on Cushing's performances in his his career, where do you think this is on that scale? I think it's often a forgotten because mm. well, it's, it's it's not widely available, is it? So, no, I mean, and it's that... not in color, and it's not but... Van Helsing. Or I feel it's probably one of his one of his top three performances. Well, do you I feel really it's would. atypical? Because I think what gets me is that watching him play that final scene to me, it really doesn't feel like the Peter Cushing I know. No, I it doesn't. No, Peter Cushing in the things I watch him in is a quite comfortable presence. You feel safe. Yeah, with him he's 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 the friendly he's the friendly uncle or grandfather. And to see him he? broken and shattered like that, and again not playing a typical performance. It, I know it's acting and it's great acting, but what I'm saying is, do you? I mean, it it, it feels slightly. I think that's why it's more shocking. If you yeah. Know, yeah, if you're thinking of the of the friendly, friendly Mister Van Helsing, and exactly. His, but his the, the good thing about this, and the, the thing about 1984 is, and this is the thing, there was nobody to say, "Tone it down." This is television, mm. Mm. and they're still finding their way because well, the re- government were trying to on on the Monday, weren't they? they were uh, to yes, to yes, because they were trying to pass um, pass. Am I right? The BBC actually, the, the board of governors didn't want the repeat to happen. Yes, they were slightly outvoted. I think by two votes to have the repeat. It wasn't till after the repeat. Now the, the, the story goes that the Queen said she liked it, so then everyone said they liked it. But it wasn't <laughs> till because the Queen saw the repeat because she wanted right. to know what the hubbub was about, right. and she loved it. But uh, no, the the board of government. Well, that's probably what happens down in the uh, the basement of, of the palaces, anyway, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody holding a coat hanger out the window. For I love day. Big Liz. I love Big Liz. I love Big Liz. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. <laughs> I think we should finish on that, though. <laughs> I think we we have pretty much, we'll have to wrap it up there. But yeah, thank you very much, Warren, for your, no, thank your insight you for into it. along again. Thank you. For time travelling with me to 1984 via 1954. Um <laughs> Yes, thank you very much, and we will uh, we'll have you back sometime. You take care. And you too. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Warren Cummings for sharing his thoughts on some of the great Cartier-Neal collaborations from the 1950s. It's always a pleasure to talk to him, and he's still putting his monthly classic film knowledge out into the world via his podcast, A Raspberry Mivy and a Footlong Dog, which is available via the usual outlets. 
So, yet again, that's it for another edition of Vision on Sound. But before some of you dash off to hear last week's show and fill in the gaps in this unusual restructuring that I hope wasn't too annoying, I ought to remind you to check everyone you meet for signs of the mark. Just in case, the peculiarities that are currently occurring in our world are actually due to some malevolent alien influence and not just people choosing to be unpleasant instead of kind. If we allow such things to subjugate us to their will, our own world may truly be lost to us. However, here in our far more pleasant world of Vision on Sound, I must add my thanks to everyone here at Fab Radio International, and of course, thanks to all of you for listening. As ever, I have been Martin, and this has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now, and take care. <laughs>